May I direct your attention now to uh, that part of God's Word which we have already read together. The Gospel of Christ according to St. Mark chapter 5. And uh, <clears throat> we could read again from verse 24. And Jesus went with them, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman who had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, uh, I shall be whole. Straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing, but the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. From the way in which uh, the miracles of the Lord are designated and also from a study of the way in which they are narrated to us, that is the story of them is told, we can learn quite clearly uh, that their principal purpose was to uh, confirm uh, in uh, the uh, to the people uh, that um, Jesus was the Savior uh, whom God had sent into the world it was they were signs uh, that um, uh, declared uh, that uh, he was the promised Redeemer. They were demonstrations uh, given at this level of his power to accomplish the purpose for which he came. They were wonders which clearly evinced uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, the deity uh, that resided, if I may put it like that, and that is the way scripture would put it, uh, in his manhood. For the fullness of the God had dwelt in him bodily. In other words, they were uh, wonders by which uh, it was abundantly authenticated that he was 
uh, a divine redeemer. Now one of those miracles, which brings these uh, aspects uh, to the poor, make them very clear to us, is the miracle of uh, the healing of this woman. I'm not saying that that is all that it teaches us. We will consider some other things too. And I would like to think first of all a little about this woman's healing touch. Or rather the touch of faith. This woman's touch of faith. And then try and reflect a little upon uh, the healing power of Christ as manifested in the case of this woman. And lastly say a word about the comfortable assurance uh, with which the Lord establishes his people in their enjoyment of the salvation that he bestows. See if we can uh, just bring some helpful thoughts to you on these three points. Nothing very profound but let us hope profitable. Uh, in uh, one of what I consider to be his best books, uh, that great writer, uh, Gresham Machen, uh, has spoken of faith as being born out of a sense of need. Uh, <clears throat> It is the title of the book is What is Faith? And uh, this is one of the first things with which he deals. That faith is born out of a sense of need. Well, in the case of this woman, it is uh, not only something that we might... Uh, Presuppose, but something I think that is explicitly revealed to us, that her need was, or her, her need and her sense of her need, was blessed to her along with other things, uh, to bring her to this uh, state of faith in Christ, uh, by which uh, she availed herself of his healing power. I didn't go into great lengths to describe to you uh, her need. It was desperate. We believe that she had been a woman of some substance. Because uh, the, when the scriptures speak of having spent all her wealth uh, upon uh, uh, the seeking of healing at the hands of physicians, uh, the thought is that that was no uh, inconsiderate uh, wealth at all, but that it was a considerable wealth that she had expended upon her, uh, upon her seeking for a cure for her very grievous illness. Now, perhaps today it is not so easy for us to appreciate uh, that touch of uh, humbleness and of uh, concern for 
the whole of life that we have in the gospel here. You see, uh, in, by and large, we are in the favored position where the ministry of healing in that respect is to a large extent uh, free of charge to us. And many of us are the debtors of that blessed provision. But it was not so in their case, and it was not so, it is still not so in the case of many. I myself have known people who were wealthy, who were brought to utter destitution because they had expended every single thing that they had to the extent of selling every vestige of their possessions to meet the costs of the medical services that they required and were left uh, in precisely the way that this woman was without healing and utterly destitute. And we must appreciate the great change in our circumstances that had resulted from this. And I think it reflects in her behavior. Uh, our religious behavior is not uh, in isolation from the kind of persons uh, that we are and the kind of circumstances that we're in. It is not something uh, that is an appendage to our life, it is something that belongs to the very warp and woof of our living if we have true faith at all. Now, uh, Matthew, rather Mark, is uh, very uh, hard on the medical profession here. Uh, if we would read the story as we have it in Luke, we would see that there is an interesting difference. Mark says that not, not only was she not bettered by the uh, medical treatment that she had received, but uh, that she was the worse for it. Well, with respect to the medical profession, and to some who may be present, that is not an unknown situation even today. Is it not the case that uh, the side effects of much of the medication that is prescribed can oftentimes, if it fails to work, be worse than the very disease uh, which it was meant to cure? And whatever uh, cures were being applied in her case, this is precisely what happened. Her, uh, her sufferings as a result of the cures that were administered, we believe, in good faith and with every good intention, yet without effect they left her in a worse condition than she had been at the beginning. We see her in this condition of destitution and of utter hopelessness. There was neither resources on her own part to seek further help, nor was there any to be expected from all the medical science that was available in her day. But in that kind of situation, uh, she learned of 
Jesus. She learned of Jesus. We are not told how she learned of him, whether she had had prior information uh, to this one particular occasion or not, we are not certain, but she did learn of him at this time that he was uh, journeying uh, to the house of uh, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. And we would also believe that she was made acquainted with the purpose of his mission, that it was in order to heal uh, the, um, <clears throat> the daughter of Jairus, who was indeed at the point of death, that is hopelessly uh, ill, and so far as human knowledge of the situation was concerned, dying if not already dead. The woman had learned of Christ and had learned of the fact that he was in the midst of that great throng uh, that still accompanied him. There was to be a time in his experience when the multitudes would forsake him. But as yet, his popularity had not waned. It was to win as we know. And it was, not only was his popularity to win, but he was to experience the bitterness of utter desolation, forsakenness by even his most trusted friends. However, that is another point. The her faith was born, we said, out of a sense of need, but that, of course, more was required than that. Uh, may I say that, uh, uh, just put a question here, it may not be the popular thing to do nowadays, but may I put the question, have you any sense of your own need? Are you here as one who needs nothing? What are you here for? Are you here just because it is your habit to attend church? Are you here because someone else brought you and you wouldn't be here if that person hadn't brought you? What I want to point out to you is this, that it would be to your advantage to know your need. And if I may just say one word in connection with that, you may be physically well, you may be well off, relatively uh, well off. You may have no need in the sense in which she had, she had spent it all, uh, and you may have your health, but you have a need. And you have a greater need of Christ than the need that was here described, just as she had. You have a need as a sinner, as a lost sinner. And I would ask you whether you know that need. And if you do not know it, I would urge you to seek to know your need. Because unless you come to know your need, it is not be, to be expected that you will come 
to have faith in Christ. Because, wonderful as it may seem, faith is something that sinners, uh, sinners who know their sinfulness, know their sinnership to some extent, it is they who have faith, not uh, saints who have no need of it, are others who may not understand that they have any need of it. It is that which needy and poor sinners have in Christ. Now, I want also to show that this woman, that she had great faith. She had great faith. Uh, sometimes great faith is found where it is least expected. Uh, there were other occasions in which the Lord spoke of the great faith of those uh, whose request for healing he acceded to. There was one Roman centurion in particular who uh, demonstrated a faith in Christ, especially in his power to heal, that was greater than anything that he had found, even in all of Israel. Where great faith would have been expected, it was not found. And where it was not to be expected, it was found. And this is something that we should bear in remembrance. And I believe that there are many parts of the world where there are uh, men and women in the most unlikely places and in the most unlikely situations that are men and women of great faith. Our faith is not always commensurate with our privileges. There are many whose privileges are great, and even if they have faith, their faith is little. And there are those whose privileges are very small, and yet who through these privileges come to great faith. Well, this woman had great faith. Uh, it was a miracle in a certain sense that she could have faith at all, faith of the, of the nature that she had. Despite everything, uh, that she had experienced, despite her experience of the apparent hopelessness of her condition, she believed that Christ was able to heal her. And that in itself is great faith. And uh, what can we do in connection with this? Well, of course it is one thing to praise the great faith of other people. To praise the great faith of other people. But you rightly say to me, it is all very well to hear of the great faith of other people, but what of me? I have great problems. I have unsurmountable problems. I have difficulties beyond that which I can explain or describe to any person. Well, what can you say to me? 
The only thing that I can say to you, friend, is that in Christ we have a great Saviour. And that your faith in him will never be as great as it ought to be. In other words, if your situation requires great faith, what you have to do and what I have to do is this, to be persuaded in our heart of the greatness of the Savior. And that was the secret of her great faith. She became fully persuaded in her heart of his greatness. And may I make this comment as I think something that is relevant to the situation of today. If we would see people growing up into great faith, into having great faith, how is it are to be brought about, how is it to be encouraged? I would suggest that the best possible way to bringing this about is to set forth to the maximum of our ability the glories of Christ, the glories of Christ. Working over the psychological states of people whether these states be states of um, pessimism and of doubt, or whether they be states of joy and acceleration, that is not what will deal with the question of faith or bring about faith. It is the setting forth of Christ in his greatness. And this is what should be our aim to set forth the Lord of glory in his greatness and that is what I wish to do what I would wish to do at every occasion that is what haunts me and troubles me above all other things in which I fail that I fail to show forth the greatness of Christ in the way that I would, and even to the little degree that I know of it myself. So that is the answer to your question. It doesn't matter how desperate your situation may be, and your situation requires great faith. I ask of you to think of the greatness of the Savior. Now, her faith was shown to be great by the way that she thought about it. Uh, she, after all that had happened in her experience, she was saying, if I can but touch his clothes, if only I can get that close to if only I can come into contact with his clothes, there will be sufficient there to effect the miracle in my life which I so desperately need. Now, in all that she was thinking and in all that she was sort of saying to herself, in all this soliloquy 
there is one thing that comes out clearly, the thought that she had of the greatness of the Savior that she wanted to touch. And that is what you and I must do. We must constantly remind ourselves in every situation in which we are faced with in unsolvable problems and insurmountable difficulties of a spiritual or whatever nature they be, that our Savior is great. Now, it was not just that she said this, but in her actual, in what she actually did. Uh, she was even, to a certain extent, in her action, she, had, she showed that she had greater faith in, than even in what she was saying. But we will come to that in perhaps a minute. There is another thing that I want to say, and this I wanted to emphasize particularly tonight, in connection with her faith, and it is this, that her faith was manifesting itself in works. It is the Apostle James, as you know, that makes a distinction between uh, a true faith and a false faith, or if you will, a dead faith and a living faith. Uh, he says that faith without works is dead. Now I believe that lots of people have this kind of dead faith. And perhaps there are some here tonight, perhaps there are many here tonight, who have faith, but it's a dead faith. A dead faith. It's dead because it doesn't show that it is living in, that it has works. What were the works of this particular woman? Well, you think of it. She didn't say, now I have great faith in this Christ. I know that he has all the power in the world to heal. And I know that if I was only but to get close enough to him to touch, that there is enough power in him to heal. And uh, think of how great a savior he was, and then sit and do nothing. No. We believe that she, as it were, put her pride under her feet in the first place. She put her pride under her feet. We must remember that uh, this had been a woman of considerable wealth. And now she had been brought into a state of destitution. And I am very, very sure that apart from this particular occasion that she would have been practicing very solicitous uh, the avoidance of uh, being a public figure. Whatever she may have been at one occasion, it is hardly to be expected that we'd, she would have quoted attention now that her state had been reduced to one of abject poverty. And she put her pride under her feet. 
She may not have liked the idea that one who had formerly been perhaps of some note as a person of a considerable standing should now be a helplessly sick, a penniless, destitute person. And that is what you have to do. That is what you have to do. I quite believe it that there are many who having that kind of faith that I was describing, a faith that is dead, how many perhaps, if I may say it, and I hope that it is wrong, but I still have to ask the question, how many of those who professed faith publicly here this morning, of whom it is true that their faith is dead, Perhaps the last thing in the world that they would be seen doing would be coming, as it were, to Christ for healing. Would they be seen in a prayer meeting? Would they be found where God's people are gathered for worship? Would they associate, them, would they associate themselves in any way publicly with the cause of God and of truth? No. No. Or they will say, what would the world think of me? How could I ever face the ostracism? How could I ever face uh, the mockery and the scorn and the ridicule with which the world would look upon me if I was to appear to be a goody-goody? Oh no. Where would the reputation for being people uh, who are not, as it were, taken in by religious propaganda be then? There are so many ways in which our sinful pride comes between us and Christ. Even people who have a kind of faith and yet who have not that kind of faith that knows how to put their pride under their feet. It's not an easy thing. And sometimes it is, it is more difficult to keep it under our feet than to put it under our feet. But she did that. And she also, as well as putting your pride under her feet, manifested her faith to be a living faith in that uh, she uh, with what must have been considerable difficulty for her was determined to make her way to the Savior. There is this in real seeking after Christ. When a person is seeking the Savior out of a sense of need, there is an element of determination. A determination that is going uh, to uh, be tested by, by perhaps difficulties and a determination uh, that will not be turned aside by any and every obstacle that comes in the way.
if you are going uh, to come to Christ in faith, don't think that there will be no obstacles. There will be obstacles. There will be obstacles from within yourself. There will be satanic obstacles. You remember the case of Christian? Remember these lions uh, that were in the way? And the many other things that were in the way? And you have to think of the fact that there are these hindrances and obstacles. The course or the path to Christ is not always plain and straight and easy. God has his reasons that it should not be so. And uh, let me say this. That in the present tenor of evangelism, we are producing hothouse believers because everything is made plain and straight and simple and no obstacle is to be put in the way. There are obstacles there. And the person who truly seeks Christ is one who will face up to them and not be turned aside by them. And not be turned aside by them. And that is the kind of faith when we're speaking of faith. It's faith that, stand, that stamps upon pride. It's faith that will make nothing or nonsense of obstacles. It's faith that is determined, that will go on and press on. Why? Because there is no other hope. There is no other hope. Because there is none else to whom we can go but to him. He is our only hope. That is the kind of faith that this woman had. Now, I want to speak also of the power, of the power, the healing power of Christ. I think the picture that we have here is of a person who is if I, might, I, I know of no other reason, no other way of putting it than this, who is full, brimful of power, brimful of power. That is the picture that is drawn to us, drawn for us of the Savior. It is not one who is trying as it were to summon up resources that will somehow or other uh, hopefully meet the demand that is being made upon it by the appeal of faith. It is not that. But is one who is possessed of such infinite resources that where all has failed, that he will succeed. Where the case is most hopeless, 
that there will be a miracle wrought. And the power, as I see it, is there in abundance. It is there in abundance. The power to effect the healing that we need. Now I want to speak of Christ's power from two points of view. Christ showed in his earthly life that he had power to deal with the miseries that sin brought into the life of man. Life has brought innumerable miseries into people's lives. And uh, very often uh, the attention is focused upon this that Christ is one who can uh, deliver people from the miseries which sin has brought into their life. Now he can do that. He did it. He did it in this case. He did it in the case of the gathering demoniac whom he had healed just prior to this. He did it in the case of uh, Jairus' daughter as he did it in innumerable other cases. But yet, for all the wonder of his power in dealing with and delivering from the miseries that sin has brought into our life, that is not the full understanding of his power. It is not the full measure of his power. Indeed, the Lord was at pains to show that his power was to be thought of primarily, not only or not principally in terms of his ability to deal with the miseries that sin, but to deal with sin itself. You see, he came to save people, not from only from the misery of sin, needy as that is, he came to save his people from their sins. And we might say that there is another uh, aspect of his power, and we may even go as far as to say another dimension of his power that is to be considered when we think in terms of saving us from the root of all the trouble. He can save us from our miseries, but he principally works in this way. His procedure is to deal with the root of the problem, to, re to, re to remove the cause of the misery before he removes the miseries itself. And the cause of sin, man's miseries is sin. It's man's sin. Now, in the actual delivering from uh, miseries, we see that the Lord wrought that by his word. 
sometimes by his touch, but even his touch was not necessary, by his word. By the forth putting of his powerful word, by speaking his word of power, he could deal with all the miseries that were in the life of man. By his word he could raise a dead man to life. He called to Lazarus, come forth, and although he had been four days dead and buried, he responded to the voice and he came forth. But when it came to deal with sin, something else, another dimension of power, another facet of power, was necessary and is necessary. Because, you see, as distinct from the miseries which are principally physical evils, sin is a moral evil. It's a spiritual evil. Sin doesn't attack the body primarily. Some sin doesn't, as it were, disease the body so much as it does the spirit of man, the soul of man. And sin is not, and sin is not so much uh, the disorder in the natural sphere as it is in the spiritual sphere. It is a moral, a spiritual evil, and that is the basic, the principal evil. Now, what kind of power? Remember that wonderful saying of the apostle in Romans concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ when he said, I am not ashamed of it. It is the power of God unto salvation. How? Because the righteousness of God is revealed in it. And it is this, when we speak of Christ's power, the power that is in him. We say indeed he is possessed of power to deal with all of sin's miseries, but he is possessed of a more wonderful power still, and that is the power to save from sin itself. Why? Because he is the Lord of righteousness. He is the revelation of the righteousness of God, or he is the righteousness of God for our salvation. And he is that, not by the doctrine that he preached only, although that comes into it, but what he did, and he did it in his sufferings and death. And when we think in terms of a savior that has power to save, it is not sufficient that we think of one who had, who could speak as man never speak. What we have to think of is one who could do what no man could do. Who could take upon him the world's sin and deal with the sin of the world and put it away through the sacrifice of himself.
And there is what we point to. This is the Savior who, in terms of his power, that we in our need have to go to. I am not suggesting for one moment that you cannot come to him with all your problems. And I'm not even suggesting that it is possible that God may, may deal with even the problems of your life with your miseries when he has not even brought salvation in your case. I'm not saying that that is impossible. But I do say this. First of all, that what we should seek him for is for his power to save us from the mother evil or from the root cause of all miseries, sin. To heal, to heal our souls. To make us morally right. To put us right in our standing with God. To change our nature from being dominated by sin and Satan to being uh, transformed by God's grace. Now, all you say, uh, that is all very well. That is all very well. That may sound fine to speak in terms of saving or salvation in a spiritual thing. Isn't that spiritualizing the whole thing away? No, my friend. It is not. It is not. It is not because I don't believe in the Lord's power to heal a person that I emphasize this side. Perhaps it is not a very proper thing to do to refer to one's own particular religious convictions. But when one is challenged in the kind of way that I have suggested, that by spiritualizing, as it were, things as they call it, placing the emphasis upon sin and salvation from sin, that we have more or less copped out of the gospel teaching and narrative. I refute and rebut that. And I do it on the basis of my own experience and of the, hate, the faith in God which I have been given to have placed my trust in him as one who could heal me when others said I couldn't be healed. I do it as one who believes that it is he who clothes me, who fits me, who heals me, who provides for me in every respect, to whom I can go with every single problem, with every single evil and misery that is in my life, and look to him as the one who can remove them, if he so wills, or 
help me to bear them if that is his will. But what if all your miseries were taken away? What supposing you were kept in health? What supposing you never knew what it was to be in poverty? You would still be a lost sinner. You would still be without God. You would still be without hope. And that is why I say that when we speak of his power, we have to think of his righteousness. We have to think of his life of obedience unto death in order to meet the problem of your sin and my sin and to save us from it. What I want to draw your draw attention to here from this narrative is this that that power is available it's available surely if this narrative if it demonstrates anything it demonstrates the availability of that power to every person who believes she didn't ask for it in fact there is a certain implication here that you might even have stealthily as it were uh, acquired it or obtained it that is an element of stealth about the whole thing as if she were uh, in a certain way to obtain that which she was not too certain that he would give I'm not very sure that that is uh, precisely uh, present but there is an element of uh, surreptitiousness about her whole approach. The word, her faith was not perfect. She had great faith. It had many imperfections. It had many imperfections. And, uh, but it was not imperfect in this way. And whatever else is revealed here, there is this revealed. The availability of Christ's power. Oh, I know that you say, if only the Lord was as willing to meet my needs and to meet with me as I am willing to come to him, then there would be instant salvation for me. I think that you will learn. As everyone who is taught of the Lord does learn and has learned that uh, what hinders you becoming, or you acquiring that salvation, you obtaining that salvation, is your unwillingness to come to him and not his unwillingness to bestow the blessing. That power is shown here to be available. Even to the slightest touch, even to the slightest touch, she actually only touched the hem. She thought, first of all, if I will touch his clothes, if only I said, well, I can get hold of his clothes. But when it actually came to the point, she became so dividend, perhaps, or she was, she, she was uh, obstructed in such a way that she could only just touch the hem. It was all that was needed. It was all that was needed. And uh, let me say that Something becomes very particularly clear here. 
Christ is alert to every, to the slightest touch of faith. The slightest outgoing of faith. Could I say that not only is he alert even to the touch, we can say that he is alert even to the look. In what has been one of the greatest books for me that I've ever read, one of the most helpful books that I've ever read, which is Guthrie's Saving Interest in Christ. It has been one of the most influential books in my life. Uh, he speaks, I think that it is worth just giving you a um, whiff of how Guthrie deals with this. He is dealing with the question as to what is saving faith? What is, in a word, it is a wholehearted acceptance of God's way of salvation. That is, I can reduce his words to that. It's a wholehearted acceptance of God's way of salvation. And he says that uh, this faith, which is a wholehearted acceptance of God's way of salvation, he says that it has many different actings. And he speaks of the different actings of faith, and he speaks of looking to Christ, which is, it, as, is as it were, the most basic, and we can say, in a certain, in a certain respect, uh, the one that uh, portrays least of uh, the strength of faith. Uh, merely to look, just as was pointed out by uh, probably we would, we would think the Apostle John in his commenting upon uh, the Lord's discourse with Nicodemus when he said that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whether they are the Lord's words or John's comments upon the Lord's words, it matters little. The point that we are making is this, that the Lord is aware of and attentive to the slightest outgoing of faith toward him. And the slightest outgoing of faith toward him obtains from him the desired benefit. Now, I want to say finally a word upon assurance. I'm not going to, uh, to detain. He was not only, he didn't only put forth his power to heal her, but he brought her to a full assurance of uh, the healing that he had bestowed upon her. Now, first of all, we see that the assurance of faith is bound up here with the matter of confession or profession, call it whatever you will. She, it was in her coming to confess what she had done and what the Lord had done for her and in her. It was in association with that, in conjunction with that, that she was brought to assurance. And let people be are uh, convinced of this that where people will refuse for any reason whatsoever uh, to not to confess God's salvation in their life there will be no assurance there will be no assurance or at least if there will be any measure of assurance it will be negligible I cannot think of how a person who uh, 
will not confess what God has done in his life can expect to have an assurance of salvation. And it was then for her good in order to assure her, to bring her this confidence that she was in full and unlosable possession of the gift.